Well, hello again, Christ Chapel. I'm so happy that you joined us for worship. We're gonna jump into God's word, but before we do, we're gonna take up an offering. And so uh, if you would, uh, go ahead and take that opportunity to give online. Many of you gave last week, and I couldn't be uh, more thankful. If you didn't give last week and you don't have that link, you can text in that specific code to the campus that you usually attend, and it'll send you a link to give. Uh, so many of you gave last week, and you even set up reoccurring gifts, which I'm so thankful for, because as I said last week, in these unprecedented times, it was gonna take unprecedented faith, and that meant unprecedented sacrifice, and, and that included giving for us. I told you benevolence needs would spike last Sunday, and certainly they did. Monday morning, we saw as many benevolence requests that one morning as we usually do in an entire month. And then by Tuesday morning, at least in Fort Worth, the unemployment rate that's usually about 13,000 had jumped to 90,000. And we got a call last week from two area food banks that were running low on groceries to give to folks in need. And so we were able, with the resources that you gave, to uh, give them some means and some money to go buy groceries to give out to families who were certainly hungry and in need. So thank you for giving. Your giving of your tithes and gifts and offerings are going to do the work of the kingdom now. So I'm so grateful that you're giving. Now that you've done that, uh, if you would, go ahead and turn Turn to Genesis chapter three, Genesis chapter three, and I, we're going to continue our series on the seven words from the cross, and I know that you're like, hold on, Cody, none of those phrases come from Genesis three, but we'll get there. I need to start in Genesis to give you some context to our sixth word from the cross. Now, many of you know how the story begins in Genesis as far as the account of creation, that God creates the heavens and the earth, and he creates all the things in it, and everything is good. Then the sixth day when he creates humankind, it's very good. Everything, he creates this utopia for us to live in, where, where everything works together in harmony, and we're walking in, in close fellowship with God. Everything is perfect. And then Satan enters into the Garden of Eden and he tempts Adam and Eve and they give in to that temptation. They, they sin. They then, therefore, are separated from God. There's a, there's a consequence to that sin, not only for Adam and Eve, but for the rest of creation. As they took the fruit, they engaged all of creation in that sin, and as a result of that sin, there is distance with God, there is disdain from an enemy, and there is discord with one another, even between Adam and Eve. And as a consequence of that sin coming into the garden, everything experiences a curse. Creation experiences a curse. Adam and Eve experience a curse as a consequence for sin, this retaliatory justice, and Satan himself is cursed as well. In Genesis chapter three, verse 15, God curses the serpent, which is Satan, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring. He, there's this one person that will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, at that very point in time, when creation and everything in it was cursed, Adam and Eve were removed from the garden. 
God employs this plan, this plan that calls for a hero of sorts, a savior, a messiah that would come and therefore bring everything back, restore creation back to the way that God intended it to be. Because you would certainly agree, especially at this time, that the world isn't the way that God intended it to be. If you didn't know that, let me be clear. This isn't what God wanted. This is what we're living in now is a result of sin. And man, ever since Genesis 3, mankind has been trying to get back to the way God intended it to be. We've just tried to do it in our own strength. And folks, you know this to be true. There's no kind of bailout. There's no kind of vaccine. There's no kind of human solution that's ever gonna get us back to the garden-like life that we have with God. It would take a divine plan. It would take a divine person who knows the divine design that God intended from the beginning to ever get us back to the way that God wanted it to be. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. As I said, we're gonna continue the series on the seven words from the cross. Today, we're gonna study our sixth word, but just to give you a quick review of the words that we've studied, if you'll remember, these seven words and their phrases, most of them, but we've pulled out one word as a subject. These all happened within about six hours that Jesus is on the cross. Jesus' crucifixion began about 9 a.m. in the morning. And for the first three hours, these first three phrases all happened from Jesus being crucified. And they're all not related to himself. They're all related to us. They're all about us. The first one was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Is the word of forgiveness. And then he spoke to the prisoner on the cross and said, today you will be with me in paradise because of his faith in Christ. And that was the word salvation that was available even to a prisoner at the, the, the fleeting moments of his life. And then the third one was about relationship. As he looked down from the cross to his mother and to John, his disciple, and he said, he redefined the relationships and, and talked about how the most important relationships are our spiritual relationships, not just our familial ones. And then the fourth word was all about how Jesus was isolated when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we talked about how Jesus was isolated so that none of us ever have to be. And ironically, that's the last word that we ended on when we were all able to gather in person. And that's why we need to remain committed to being connected to one another spiritually. And then the last sermon that we did was the fifth word from the cross, which Dr. Doug Cecil did, which was Jesus is saying, I thirst. It expressed his humanity. And the word was desperation, how we all have a thirst that we can't quench ourselves that Jesus, the living water, is the only one who can quench that thirst. Well, today we come to our sixth word from the cross, which is just literally in Greek, one word. It's tetelestai. And it is that phrase that is in John chapter 19, verse 30. It's the phrase, it is finished. That's the phrase. But it all comes from one word, tetelestai. This word and this phrase only shows up in the Gospel of John. In Mark and Matthew, it only tells us that there's a loud cry. But this was the loud cry that Jesus gives us, 
tetelestai. Now, tetelestai is an interesting word because it's a very common word that would have been used during those days that meant to complete a task or an obligation or even a plan. It meant to finish something. One of the ways that we know that this word was used, uh, ancient papyri have been found with the word tetelestai on a receipt that a person paid for their taxes. So when you finished paying your taxes, they would say that it's been paid in full. It's been tetelestai. It is finished. You are finished paying your debt. Anecdotally, we uh, read an account of someone saying that this actually happened with ancient criminals as well. That when a criminal was uh, convicted of a crime, that he would be put in a jail cell, he or she would be put in a jail cell, and a piece of paper would be put outside of the jail cell that would have told of their crime, but would have also told of their sentence, how long they were meant to be incarcerated. And then when they were done serving that sentence, that the piece of paper was then handed to them with the word tetelestai, that it's finished. They have finished paying their debt that they owed for their crime. And they would always carry that piece of paper around that verified their freedom. So that if anybody said, hey, did, weren't you supposed to be in prison? They could show them, no, tetelestai, it is finished. So it's a very common Greek word, but Jesus uses it in a very uncommon way from the cross. See, when Jesus says it's finished, what he's saying is that Jesus completed the goal for which he was sent to accomplish, and that was our redemption. Our redemption. Now, I know I've introduced a new word, redemption, to you, and I'll explain what uh, redemption means. To redeem something means to return to its rightful place, to return to its rightful condition, to its original intent. Oftentimes, it meant to return to its original owner. And in order to return to an original owner, there was usually a cost, you had to buy it back. In fact, that's what the word redemption or to redeem literally means. It means to buy back, to pay a price to, for the owner to get back what was originally theirs. And that's what Jesus came for. If you remember Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus tells us that his whole mission, he said, I came to seek and to save the lost. That, that's why he came. He came to complete that goal, to redeem us, to buy us back. Well, where does that come from? Where did we get lost? We got lost in the garden. It all goes back to Genesis chapter three. When sin entered the world and sin entered our lives uh, as well, sin distanced us from a holy God. Adam and Eve were distanced out of that garden. They were removed to the east of Eden, uh, sin enslaved us to errant desires. When sin entered into our lives, we are now enslaved to those. And sin divided us from one another. This was not the way that God intended it to be. And that's why Jesus came, was to restore us back to our original condition. But in order to restore us, he had to redeem us. He had to literally buy us back. And so when Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. 
That means that the final payment has been made. Jesus has paid the price in full. You see, because tetelestai doesn't just mean to finish a task. It means to fulfill a task to its fullest extent. He left no stone unturned. And I put this in your sermon notes because that it is uh, pregnant with meaning, if I can use that phrase. It's full of meaning of when when he says it is finished, what it is he talking about? Is he just talking about the price that he paid on the cross? He's talking about so much more. And so I've put these in your sermon notes and want you to see. Because when he says it is finished, he's talking about a bunch of different things. The first thing is, He's talking about his earthly life and the suffering of Christ for the sake of our sins. Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. That, that's what our sin deserves. That's, that's the, the payment that's required for our sin. And so when Jesus says, it is finished, what he's saying is, I have finished paying the penalty for your sin. Because I have suffered everything of the wrath of God, that cup that he asked would be removed from him in Gethsemane, that the wrath of God has been poured out on him, he has suffered, he has finished suffering to the point that he has shed his blood even to death. So his life, his earthly suffering is now tetelestai, it's finished. Also, the Old Testament prophecies predicting God's salvation through a Messiah, that is finished. Uh, In the Old Testament, there were hundreds of prophecies predicting this Messiah, this one who would bruise the head or strike the head of the enemy. There, There were, all of these were pointing and foreshadowing the coming of Jesus, our Savior. In fact, and he fulfilled all of them. In fact, there were 28 prophecies that were directly related to the cross, to his crucifixion, that were fulfilled. So Jesus fulfills hundreds of prophecies and he fulfills them all to their fullest extent. And he says, that's finished. The prophecies are finished. He also goes on, another thing that's finished is the sacrificial system that foreshadowed foreshadowed ultimate forgiveness. If you remember, the sacrificial system was begun by Moses. It was given to God, uh, by God to Moses. And Moses began that, the sacrificial system that foreshadowed the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus would pay for us on the cross. And somebody went and did the math to this, and they correlated that there would be about 290 sacrifices that a priest would make on a daily basis. Now, if you uh, compound that over the many, many years, let's just say 1,500 years from the time that the sacrificial system was introduced to Moses to the time that Jesus paid the ultimate price on the cross, there would have been 153 million sacrifices given. 153 million sacrifices that foreshadowed the price that Jesus would ultimately pay. And when Jesus pays it all on the cross, it's finished. There's no other sacrifice that remains. There's no other sacrifice to be made for sins. He is the ultimate sacrifice, finishing off that entire sacrificial system. And then finally, what he does is he finishes the pathway to peace with God and access to all of God's promises as his heirs. 
He removes the block, the roadblock of sin that came between us and God. And he removes that roadblock so that we now have access to a holy God. Not only access to a relationship with him, but we are now co-heirs with Christ. We now have access to all of the promises of God. It's unbelievable. And that pathway has now been finished. We now have direct access to him. All of these things, the negative of him paying the penalty for our sin, the positive of all the promises available to us, all of these things to its fullest extent, tetelestai, it has been finished right there on the cross with Jesus. See, his purpose of coming to seek and to save the lost, to bring us back to God, was all fulfilled at that moment on the cross. That's what 1 Peter 3.18 says. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So that he might bring us to God. He suffered for us, shedding his blood so that we might come back to God. He paved the way. It's finished. There's no other sacrifice that needs to be made. There's no other things that we can do to earn it. He's done it all. See, Jesus completed the work necessary to bring us back to God. It was a plan that started back in Genesis 3. You see, because when something is finished, it implies that there's a plan, a plan in place. The way that the designer had imagined it going And that plan for redemption started in Genesis 3, and then Jesus carries it all the way to completion so that now through Christ, we can be made new. That's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, now if we have faith in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has now come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. You see, through Christ, the the curse is reversed. All all of those things, all of the, the curses that creation was experiencing, that we were experiencing through Christ, all of those things are reversed. They go, they go back. We can go back to the way that God intended it to be but that's only through Christ. It's something that your heart longs for. It's something that my heart longs for. It's something that creation has been longing for as Romans talks about. Everything wants to be renewed, restored, redeemed back to its original, but it only happens through Christ. I've put that on your sermon notes just to tell you what happens through Christ, how we can go back to being a new creation, recreated in Christ. You see, through Christ, the distance with God is erased. The distance that Adam and Eve had once experienced being cast out of his presence east of Eden, there's now no longer any distance. In fact, What we know from uh, corresponding gospels, synoptic gospels, is that when Jesus says, it is finished, there is a symbolic 
representation of us having direct access to God. You see, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, it says, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And you go, well, what, what curtain is this, Cody? What are you talking about? This is, is this in a household? No. See, this curtain was a special curtain that was in the temple that was there where people would worship God. And this specific curtain was even in a specific room inside this place where people worship God. And that room was called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, that's where they said symbolically God's presence dwelled. And only the high priest was allowed to go into that room, the Holy of Holies, and he was only allowed to go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. But even when he went in there, there was a curtain that separated the priest from the holy God. And it says at the time when Jesus says to Telestai, it is finished, it's been paid in full, that that curtain is symbolically ripped from top to bottom in two. Not just a tiny tear, but it no longer stands. We now have direct access to a holy God. Also through Christ, the enslavement to the enemy is overcome. All of those errant desires that led us into temptation, that all of us have fell prey to, all of us have fallen prey to, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all thought we knew how to do it best. And when we entered into that sin and temptation, we were now enslaved to those uh, desires, those carnal desires, always thinking that we were searching for fulfillment and we never got there. We were always enslaved to that. And only through Christ can that enslavement be broken. And we don't have to be enslaved to that any longer. In fact, Jesus says that he says, I have told you these things that you may have peace. You see, in the world, you will have tribulation. Couldn't be more true today. And even as believers, we still have trouble. But he says, take heart. Just like we talked about last week. Take heart, have courage, have confidence in me. He says, I have overcome the world. You see, we follow him. We follow in his footsteps. And we follow him in freedom, not enslaved to sin, to those desires that end up leading to death and destruction. And through Christ, the division with each other is replaced with unity. You see, back in the garden, as soon as Adam and Eve sin, they are divided by sin and shame. And it says nakedness. Nakedness always uh, pointed to shame. They, they ran away from one another. They no longer had the, the unity that, that mimicked the triune God, the oneness. But then through Christ, we can be unified in a way that we could never be unified without him. Colossians 3 says, as God's chosen ones, put on be compassionate to one another. Uh, put, have compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, patience. And, and he goes on, Paul goes on telling the church in Colossae, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. We need forgiveness between one another all the time. And he says, that model though, the only way that we can forgive one another is if we understand how God has forgiven us, and we can therefore forgive each other. See, all of this only happens through Christ. We, we can't get back to the way that God intended it to be, the way that we all want it to be, 
the way that it was in the beginning unless we have a bridge to get there. And Jesus laid down his life to bridge the gap to a holy God so that we could therefore be redeemed and restored back to our relationship with him. And then it take on a whole new meaning and change our entire world, change our entire lives. That's why he laid down his life. It, it was to be the bridge back to God. You've probably seen pictures of the Brooklyn Bridge before, or, or maybe you've been there as well. You know, it's the bridge over the East River that, that connects Manhattan and Brooklyn. Uh, that bridge was opened back in May, it was opened on May 24th, 1883. At the time, it was the longest suspension bridge in the world. And everybody thought, the city officials thought everybody would be excited about this bridge excited to use it, excited to, to cross over the river, excited to go to the city. But unfortunately, people were skeptical about the bridge. They were skeptical that the bridge was actually finished, skeptical that it could hold their weight. In fact, they were so skeptical that on May 30th, 1883, just a few days after the bridge had opened to the public, there were people walking on the bridge and a lady happened to lose her balance and she tripped and fell. Another onlooker who saw her said, the bridge is falling and shouted that out. It caused a stampede, a stampede like no other, so much so that people trampled one another and 12 people lost their lives. 36 were critically injured, all because they were afraid that this bridge couldn't hold their weight. City officials had spent a lot of money. In fact, the bridge at that time cost $15 million. It spent a lot of good money on this bridge. It cost a lot to build this bridge to connect those two cities. So much so that they wanted the city to use it. So they tried to come up with some, devise a plan that, that might encourage people to have confidence that the bridge could, could hold their weight, that the bridge was actually complete and finished. And so their idea was, let's talk to the circus. And so they reached out to P.T. Barnum of Barnum and Bailey Circus. And they said, would you lead a, a procession? Would you lead a parade of all of your animals to go across the bridge so that then everyone will see that the bridge is trustworthy, that, that it validates its use and it can hold up their weight? And P.T. Barnum, you know, always wanting some publicity, decided that he would do that. And so on May 17th, 1884, he took a circus in a parade across that bridge. In that parade were 21 elephants and 17 camels. Pulling up the rear, one of the elephants was Jumbo the Elephant, a six-ton, 12-foot African elephant. And after the, the people in the city saw that the, the bridge would sustain their weight, they decided they could trust it with their own lives as well. You see, what I find so ironic about that is the bridge was complete and the bridge was finished. The only thing that stopped people from crossing it was their own fear and insecurity, what was their lack of trust. And how could they show that they trusted the bridge? It was to put their full weight on the bridge, to literally entrust their lives to that bridge. I mean, I think it's obvious 
the spiritual implication that's there. You see, the bridge is finished. Jesus has bridged the gap that that we could never bridge ourselves to bring us back to God. The work is finished. The question is, will you come back to God? Will you trust him with your life? And will you walk over that bridge? You take advantage of that gift that he's given you to be that bridge back to God. Let me give you some words to live by. First, don't leave his finished work as your unfinished business. Don't leave Christ's finished work as your unfinished business. You know, it'd be a shame for the Brooklyn Bridge to, for people to have spent $15 million back in 1883 for this enormous amount to be paid for this beautiful bridge that was sufficient to carry anyone over who wanted to, yet no one use it. No, no one ever trust it and go to a better place. Enjoy the freedom that they have and access. The same is true for God. The, the work has been finished. Christ laid down his life. Everything's been completed and done. And what a tragedy if we just stay on the other side, distant from God, and never take advantage of his free gift, the free gift that's available to you that he offers you at such a high cost, the cost of his son. That's what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says is, it's a gift. You've already been given a ticket. The ticket's been paid for you to cross over. Jesus has finished the work. He's paid the price. It's been paid in full to telestai. There's nothing you can do to earn it. You just have to accept it. See, so often when you try to work your way to God, what you're trying to do is build a bridge by yourself. There's no way that you can build a bridge by yourself. That Brooklyn Bridge couldn't have been built by one person. And you can't build a bridge sufficient enough to get you back to God. His work's been finished. And there's no reason for you to let his finished work be your unfinished business. Today, you need to place your trust in Jesus Christ. That means placing your entire life based on what he's done for you, trusting in nothing else but him alone as your bridge back to God. Don't leave that unfinished today. And maybe you've already placed your trust in Jesus Christ. And what I would ask for you to do is to experience God's favor rather than trying to earn it. See, somehow I think we believe that we still have to earn God's favor even after we come to know Christ. We still want him to be pleased with us. We still, we still want him to look favorably at us. We still think that, that we can make the bridge better somehow. And that's just not true. Because if we're living still trying to earn God's affection, then we're not living like it's been finished. We're living like there's something incomplete. And if we all sat in our right minds, none of us would say, well, well Jesus, your work is incomplete. We would never say that. 
but we oftentimes live like it. And we try to continue to earn his favor and we just, it, that doesn't draw us any closer to God. In fact, it, it steals the attention from God. It steals the attention from Christ as we try to shine the spotlight on ourselves. Would you stop trying to earn God's favor and experience it? It's complete, it's finished, it's paid in full. In fact, in Ephesians 1.3, it says that Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That in Christ, you already have every spiritual blessing. You know what that tells me? That there's nothing left out there for you to earn. If everything has already been given to you, there's nothing left to earn. See, that, that's the fallacy we get into. The fallacy is we start living like Christianity is a religion, and religion says, finish the work. You better be good. You better do the right things. And a relationship with Christ says, the work's finished. It's, it's done. You're mine. Would you live in my favor? Would you live as my child? Christian, it's time for you to stop trying to earn God's favor and just experience it. Let it lavish you. Let God's love wash over you. You're never gonna rest otherwise. If you keep trying to earn it, there's no joy. There's no peace. There's no fulfillment or satisfaction. Remember, Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. How does he give us that rest? He finishes the work. And then finally, submit to the plan that he promises to complete in you, to make you like Christ. We all need to submit to his plan. You see, God's plan to redeem us didn't just start in Genesis 3. He paved the way all the way on the cross to finish that work. And now as we're a new creation, he's going to continue to conform us into the image of Christ, but he won't be tetelestai. He won't be finished with us until we see him face to face. And we need to submit to the work that he's trying to do in, and up, in us and yield to his spirit and say, God, do your good work in me because that's the work he's trying to complete. You see, just as the pathway was made complete on the cross, he's trying to finish that good work in us as well. That's what Philippians 1.6 says, that he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion. I just ask that you would submit, that you would yield to the spirit working in you. Don't be stubborn. Don't resist it. He's gonna continue to move you closer to Christ as he conforms you into the image of his son. And so I'd like to end this way. It might be overly simplistic, but I think it's poignant. At the bottom of your sermon notes, there's a multiple choice question that I want each of you to answer. And the question is very simple. The question is this. I believe and live as if the work necessary to give me abundant and eternal life has been either A, a quarter paid, B, halfway paid, C, even three quarters paid, or D, it's been completely paid, fulfilled in Christ.
I want each of you to circle an answer. I want you to be honest with yourself and where you are in your relationship with God. And let me ask you this. If you circled anything other than D, then what's it gonna take to get you there? What's it gonna take to get you to D? What, I mean, what is it? Is it some kind of good works? Is it somebody telling you nice things about yourself? Is it you finishing a volunteer project? What, what is it gonna take? Because I think if you sat and reasoned it out, you'd realize nothing's ever gonna add up in your own effort to complete what only Christ can do. You see, it's my prayer that all of us today would come to the point where we realize that our salvation and our assurance is in Christ alone, that it can only be completed in him, and that we would all rest in Christ and rest in our souls, saying, Tetelestai, thank you, God, that it is finished. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that you have sent your son to build a bridge that we could never build ourselves. To bring us and bridge the, the chasm that we had created with our own sin. We didn't deserve it. We didn't deserve to be loved by you. We didn't deserve to be brought back into a right relationship with you, but you loved us so much that you sent your only son to complete that work. May we rest in you, may we come to you for that soul, eternal rest and abundant life that's only available through your wonderful divine bridge back to the way that you intended it to be. That's in your son, in whose name we pray, amen.